donut or juice or coffee if you haven't done it yet, some tea, and uh, we'll get started with a word of prayer. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it strengthens us. We thank you for how it encourages us. We thank you how you give us wisdom that is not of this world through this remarkable book. I pray that as we study it this morning, we would not only be students of it, but that we would receive it with joy, that we might do the word, that we might serve and love others, especially during this Advent season. Lord, uh, as we anticipate your coming on Christmas and remember the miracle of the incarnation, we pray that you would do a work of new birth within us by your spirit, that just as you overshadowed Mary and brought Jesus to life, so too you would give us your spirit and give us life. Lord, hear our prayer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, how you guys doing with your Bible reading? Doing okay? Anybody doing any kind of Christmas theme type stuff this time of year? It's all Christmas themed? Well, you may not think so after we look at the book of Job today. Uh, if you have a very Job Christmas, uh, you may need help. You may want to stay home this year. Oh, goodness. First Corinthians, what are you all reading? Luke, okay. Did you jump over to Luke uh, intentionally for the Christmas season? Good. I've been reading the book of Hebrews. I mention this every week, but I'm doing the chronological Bible reading. And it, so I just, I've got one more chapter in the book of Hebrews. So today I had um, that great kind of heroes of the faith chapter in 11. And then uh, chapter 12, uh, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What, a, what amazing, life-giving words in a very technical book, the book of Hebrews. So, good. Anybody else? What are you all reading? I'm reading uh, Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Hey, all right, good. <laughs> You're right on track. Good, good, good. Anybody else? Second Corinthians. Good. Good, good. All right, did you read, just finish 1 Corinthians? Are you going in order? Yep. Good, excellent. Well, good. Always want to encourage you to read your Bible. Uh, this book is about different books of the Bible, but if this is all the Bible you get in this class and on Sunday morning, I think you're missing out. You know, there's a, a feast for you available in the Word of God, and I hope that this class gives you uh, tools to encourage you and to remind you that you can read the Word of God. It is not beyond your understanding. With a little bit of background, with a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of thinking, uh, the Bible will come alive. So, All right, well, this week we're going to look at Job. I want to begin with a series of kind of rhetorical questions. The first is, is Christianity a faith for winners? Is Christianity a faith for winners? <laughs> it is sometimes a phase for whiners. <laughs> but well, that's, that's another one for another day. Is Christianity a faith for winners? The foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Very good. Is the Christian life about prosperity, health, wealth, and happiness? Or is the Christian life about calamity? Hmm. 
Is Christianity about health or is Christianity about sickness and suffering? To put a more pointed uh, lens on it, is Christianity a faith for Super Bowl winners like evangelical Super Bowl winner Kurt Warner or for Super Bowl losers like evangelical Super Bowl loser, Coach Lovey Smith. Right? Both are, are faithful Christian men of God. One is a Super Bowl winner, the other a Super Bowl loser. If you go to your local Christian bookstore or search online for Amazon.com, you'll get a pretty one-sided view of what the Christian life is. Essentially, you'll find book after book teaching you biblical principles for becoming the anti-Job. Perhaps nowhere is this picture more one-sided than the booming Christian sports biography genre. I read a lot of books. Have any of you ever re read a Christian sports biography genre book? I've read a couple of those. Tim Tebow's book or some, you know, this, this one, Heart of a Champion. Here's a quote. These books usually include the obligatory tales of a hard scrabble upbringing, the wild early years as a pro, the rededication of one's life to Christ, at which point the blessings, Super Bowl trophy, uh, tro Super Bowl trophy wife, new contract, etc., start to flow. These books are okay if the reader also happens to be a Super Bowl champion. Otherwise, they leave the reader a little empty, a little let down. What happens when a person dedicates his or her life to Jesus Christ and doesn't win a Super Bowl trophy? What happens when, like Job, we suffer financial ruin? What happens when, like Job, our health fails? At its heart, Job is a book about suffering. Job raises one of the most complex questions that men and women can ask in the midst of suffering, which is, are God's ways just? If, in your reading of the Bible thus far, you've been struggling to keep up with the names and the dates and the precise relationships of the Babylonian Empire and the Persian Empire, you'll probably get a little bit of relief from the book of Job. Job is the first of what the Bible uh, calls wisdom books. The wisdom books are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs. Unlike the historical books that we've been studying, or the prophets, which are yet to come, the wisdom books are, are, about, are, are not about the corporate people of God. They're about individuals, and as such, they tend to have a little bit more of a timeless character. These are books that we can read, and we don't have to remember uh, what exactly is happening in the history of the nation of Israel. We can sort of directly apply these wisdom books to our lives. For many, the wisdom books are the heart of the Old Testament. They deal with themes that resonate with us today, themes like suffering, joy, worship, repentance, as, ways the, as well as the ways of wisdom and folly. We'll talk about that more in the book of Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom and folly are actually depicted as two different women, two different people, 
both of whom sit at the highest point of the city as essentially rival gods or goddesses. There's Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly, and both of whom call out to the young man and say, follow me. And so the wisdom books, including Job, are essentially invitations to follow the path of wisdom, which leads to joy and life and salvation, as opposed to following the path of folly, which leads to destruction, death, hardship. And so those are the two competing voices in the wisdom books. Like the rest of the wisdom books, Job contains mystery. It's a deeply moving and incredibly complex story. In a world in which we are led to believe that most crimes can be solved and crises averted in an hour or less, if you fast forward the commercials, the book of Job rejects simplistic answers to life's seemingly unanswerable questions. So, where does this book come from? Is this just a, a timeless fable, or can we situate it within the Bible story of redemption? Now, before diving into the text itself, let's take a look, quick look at the historical background of the book of Job. The book of Job claims no definite author or definite date of composition. Like many of the books we've looked at so far, the author is anonymous. Some Christian scholars believe the book was written by Moses. Others believe that it might have been written by Solomon. He was one of the great wisdom writers in the Bible. Uh, others believe maybe it was another writer who wrote this during the Solomonic period. Still others suggest Job is a product of an anonymous writer during the 8th century B.C. Because of the lack of hard evidence, most, most uh, scholars hold questions of date and authorship with an open hand. While it's fine to speculate, it's probably best not to be too dogmatic about uh, who wrote Job and when exactly it was written. We don't know for sure. The plot is set in the days of the patriarchs. Who are the patriarchs? Can you t anybody tell me that those names? Who are the patriarchs? Abraham, Abraham was a patriarch. Isaac was a patriarch. Did I hear Jacob over here? See, these are the, the fathers of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, his sons, who uh, became the, known, the name for the 12 tribes of Israel. They took their names. The biblical character who most closely resembles Job is the patriarch Abraham. Like Abraham, Job's great wealth is measured in terms of his, the number of cattle in his possession and in the servants that he employs. Somebody read uh, Job 1, verse 3. See how wealthy old Job was. How many of you possess 7,000 sheep? Anybody? Uh, 3,000 camels? How about 500 oxen? No. So Job is richer than anyone in this room by those standards. Job was the head of a large family for whom he served as a priest, much like 
Abraham did for his family. For example, Job offered sacrifices for his family, something that would have been unthinkable after the formal establishment of the priesthood at Sinai. Does that make sense? So uh, if there is a formal establishment of the priesthood, then uh, Job would be condemned for offering sacrifices for his family, much in the way that King Saul was condemned for offering unauthorized sacrifices in the book of 1 Samuel. Anyone remember that story? Uh, first, uh, Saul refused to wait for uh, Samuel to come, authorized, authorized strange fire to the Lord. So anyway, it's not good. All right, somebody read uh, Job 1 verse 5. So Job, like Abraham, patriarchs, is offering sacrifices for his family. So were Job and Abraham contemporaries? One hint that Job lived before Abraham is Job's age. While Abraham was 175 years old when he died, Job lived another 140 years after his restoration at the end of the book. In the Bible, Older ages are generally associated with earlier periods of history. So, for example, if you were to read the genealogies in Genesis 5, you see people living much, much longer than they did during the, the, name, uh, the age of Abraham. For example, the oldest person in the Bible was who? Methuselah, who lived... 960, 960, 969, 969 is a very long time, which we learned in Sunday school, right? Did anyone hear, hear that, learn that song? We must have gone to a very fundamentalist Sunday school where we were learning Methuselah songs. Uh, 960, 960, 969, 969 is a very long time. So that's how we remembered Methuselah's age. Now, perhaps the most significant clue that Job lived before Abraham is the fact that he was not an Israelite. We don't know the exact location of us, which is mentioned in verse 1, but there's no record, biblically or otherwise, of it being within the boundaries of Israel. The text describes it merely as part of the east. We read that he was a man from the east. In terms of the progress of redemption, Job is best understood as having lived before the Abrahamic covenant, which narrows the covenant community to a particular family. Does that make sense? So before God made the covenant with Abraham and said, your family, through your family, Abraham, all the nations on earth will be blessed, there were followers of Yahweh, the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth. And we believe that Job was one of those pre-Abrahamic followers of the creator God, Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of, of mentioned in the creation story. Now, based on all this, you may hear it said that Job is the oldest book in the Bible. That's often uh, contended, and in fact, in the... Uh, 
chronological Bible, Job, comes very early in your readings. While this can't be proven with absolute certainty, it is certainly within the realm of possibility that Job is the oldest book of the Bible. Okay, literary analysis. Job is largely a poetic book framed by two sections of prose. Who can tell me the difference between prose and poetry? Any, any English majors out there? What is prose and what is poetry? You'll, just, you'll find out if you read the book of Job, but somebody describe it for me. What's, first, what's prose? Who are some people that write prose? Like narrative. So let's think, let's think about prose and poetry in one person, William Shakespeare. William Shakespeare wrote a lot of prose. Hamlet is prose. Othello is prose. Macbeth is prose. But he also wrote a lot of poetry. Things with meter and sometimes rhyme scheme and um, a little bit less exact in terms of its narration of events. That's what Job is. We have prose, 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 which is the part of Job we mostly read. And then we have long sections of poetry and then some prose at the very end. Okay? We have a prose prologue, which is chapters 1 and 2. We have poetry, which is Job's dialogue with his three friends, which is chapter 3 through 31. And then we have another section of poetry, which is Elihu's monologue, which happens in 32 through 37. We have some more poetry, Yahweh's speech and Job's response, which take us from chapter 38 to 42, verse 6. And then we have a prose epilogue at the very end of the story, which is 42, verses 7 through 17. So prose, poetry, 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 and then more prose at the end. All right, let's look at the prologue. The prologue opens the narrative by including, uh, by introducing us to the main characters and providing the setting for the book. The prologue establishes the problem that the book will attempt to solve. Job's suffering and his apparent innocence. In the introduction, we also learn something that Job, his wife, and his three friends don't know, that Job's suffering is a test of his faithfulness. Somebody read Job 1, 9 through 12. Right, so you, do you see the, the setup here? Job and his three friends and his wife know none of this, but kind of behind the scenes, Satan is saying, yeah, Job is a pretty faithful guy, but is he really faithful? What would happen if he lost his family? What would happen if he lost his wealth? What would happen if he lost all those sheep and oxen and those things we mentioned earlier? Would he still be faithful? Is he, is he kind of a fair-weather believer? That's the question. 
All right, now we have Job's dialogue with his three friends, chapter 3 through 31. The central poetic section of the book begins with Job's lament, surrounded by his friends, Elphaz, Bildad the Shuhite, pictured here, got it? Dave, thank you. And Zophar, Job begins this section by protesting his innocence. What follows is three cycles of dialogue between Job and his three friends. I'll kind of point it out to you rather than describe it all. Do you see? So the first cycle, he's got Elphaz, Job, Bildad, Job, Zophar, Job. Those are the three friends. So Job's friend speaks, Job responds, friend, response, friend, response. And that happens three, three times, three cycles in the book. That's really helpful because I think if you just read the book on your own without keeping that in mind, it's a little bit easier to get lost because you're kind of confused about who's talking and why is he talking. But you see the, the structure, how the structure helps us understand the book? Okay. Well, you'll notice is that by the time we get to the third cycle of speeches, the speeches get considerably shorter. Essentially, Job's friends are running out of things to say. Now, note, the fact that this is presented as poetry clues us into the fact that we're not reading transcripts of the conversations that Job had with his three friends. Uh, people in the ancient world did not walk around speaking poetry to one another, much like we do not walk around speaking poetry to each other today. Like a musical or an opera, the structure itself communicates meaning beyond the words themselves. Does that make sense? So we shouldn't expect people in the ancient world or the modern world to sort of walk around speaking these poetic ways. It's written that way in order to communicate the ideas in a way, in a unique way. Okay. Now, what was wrong with Job's three friends? Why was their advice ultimately insufficient and unhelpful? Well, Job's friends were communicating something called retribution theology. They believe that God blesses the righteous and punishes the wicked. Joseph, or Job was suffering, therefore he was wicked and God was punishing him. Simple, right? That's the theology of Job's friends. Of course, we never see anything like the mechanical application of retribution theology in our age, do we? It's a good thing that we don't have Christians who sound a lot like Job's three friends, right? Hmm. Consider these two quotes. Americans chicken, America's chickens are coming home to roost. That was said by Jeremiah Wright, ordained minister, commenting on the 9-11 on the terrorist attacks. And here's another one. Something happened a long time ago in Haiti. They got together and swore a pact with the devil. That is Pat Robertson, ordained minister, commenting on the 2010 Haitian earthquake. Again, for, uh, politically wise... Two very, very different people coming at it from two very, very different perspectives, but both are communicating retribution theology. 
America did something wrong, we are suffering. Haiti did something wrong, they are suffering. You see? Mechanical. Now, my point is not to pick on these two guys. It's simply to point out that Job demonstrates that retribution theology is insufficient to explain God's plan in every case. Sometimes there is a direct cause and effect relationship between sin and suffering, and sometimes no such relationship exists. If you sin, you will suffer, does not equal if you suffer, then you have sinned. Does that make sense? If you sin, then you will suffer, does not equal you, have, you are suffering, therefore you have sinned. Jesus affirms this as well in John chapter 9. Somebody read John chapter 9, 1 through 3. See, uh, in, that, in the story, the disciples are doing the retribution theology thing, right? Here's a man who's born blind. Well, somebody had to do something in order for him to be born blind. They probably thought they were being gracious by suggesting that maybe it was his parents and not him. But Jesus says, that's not the case. Retribution theology is not sufficient to explain uh, suffering in the world. We can also see an example of this in Luke 13, 1 through 5, similar stuff. At the heart of Job's dialogue with his friends, and really all the wisdom books, is the question, who is wise? Who interprets Job's suffering correctly? Both Job and his three friends claim wisdom and ridicule the wisdom of the others, but in the end, it's up to God to settle the question. Okay, let's move to the next section. Elihu's monologue, chapters 32 through 37. After Job and his friends reached a stalemate, the brash young Elihu steps up to the plate. Though he claimed to have something new to say, Elihu returned to the same retribution theology espoused by Job's three friends. Somebody read verse, chapter 34, verse 11. Is that true? That's what the book of Job attempts to answer. All right, the Lord's speech and Job's response, 38 through 42, verse 6. Throughout the book, Job has demanded an audience with the Lord to address his grievances. He finally gets his wish as the Lord appears to him, speaking to him out of a whirlwind. Note here that the whirlwind signifies God's coming in judgment. It's that way in Psalm 18, Psalm 29, and Nahum chapter 1. Anytime there's a whirlwind, this is God coming in judgment. So be careful what you ask for, Job. The striking thing about the Lord's response to Job is that he never really answers Job's question of why this happened to him. Job is never let in on the secret events that took place in chapter 1. God merely appears to Job, tells him to dress like action for a man, 
and then asks Job a series of rhetorical questions that demonstrate his absolute sovereignty over what's happening to Job. Somebody read 38 verses 4 through 11. Now, it's always dangerous to answer rhetorical questions, uh, but was Job there when all of that happened? No. So what's God's point of, of this speech? What is he trying to communicate to Job through these questions? Trust me. God is God. God is God. Job is not. Jeannie? Who's in control, right? See, he's saying, who are you, oh man, to talk back to God? See that, and that can be difficult for us to uh, accept God's sovereignty sometimes, especially when we're suffering. But God has mysterious ways that we do not always understand. And sometimes when we try to unpack this or try to get a peek behind the curtain, God simply says, I have my reasons. The Lord responded to Job not by explaining Job's circumstances, but by explaining himself. Throughout the book, the question is, who is wise? And God answers definitively, I am wise. Even though many of Job's questions remained unanswered, in the end, Job humbly, humbly submitted to God's plan. Okay, the epilogue, last section here. Uh, returning to prose, the epilogue brings the story to a happy resolution. Job was reconciled to God, Job's fortunes were restored, and Job lived a long, blessed life. Job was restored because he refused to curse God and die, which was his wife's advice in the opening chapters, and he rejected the hurtful and simplistic solutions offered by his friends. He found his happiness through repentance and submission to God's will. All right, let's look at some theological themes from the book of Job. The first theme is God is wisdom. God doesn't merely possess wisdom, though he does. God is wisdom. As noted previously, all the characters in Job claim to be wise, and yet none of them were able to substantiate that claim. The question of who is wise remains unsettled until God descends and speaks to Job in the whirlwind. In his answer to Job, God reveals that he is wisdom and that a proper response to God is repentance and submission. According to Job, somebody read verses 5 and 6 of chapter 42. What does he say? Thank you. 
right? So repentance, faith, submission. All right, the next theme is human suffering. While we as readers gain a little bit of insight into why Job suffers, we, we are revealed that he was being tested by God or that specifically God was allowing Satan to harm him as a test of his faith, Job gets no such insight. What Job and his friends get instead is a refutation of a mechanical application of this doctrine of retribution. While it is true that God punishes sin, sometimes in this life, definitely in the life to come, as, as you see the rest of the wisdom books, Elphaz, Bildad, and Zophar were incorrect in assuming that all suffering is punishment for sin. We may not know exactly why we're suffering. Uh, Christians suffer economically, just like Job did. Uh, Christians get sick, just like Job did. Uh, Christians lose family members, just like Job did. All of his uh, children died. Christians have friends who disappoint them when they're needed the most, just like Job had. Christians suffer marital, marital difficulties, just like Job did. But we do know that God is wise. God has reasons for doing things, even though, like Job, we may never learn those reasons. How can we trust God even in the unknown? How do we know that our suffering isn't just the opening act to God's whirlwind of judgment that will one day descend upon us? Well, the answer is we can trust God because in Christ Jesus, God entered into our suffering and in so doing, redeemed our suffering. Jesus Christ, who is both the Son of God and the only truly innocent man, descended from heaven, not in a whirlwind, not in judgment, but in love. In John 3, 3, we read, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. The good news of our redemption is also the good news of our restoration. The suffering that plagues us in this life may, be, may not be specific judgment for specific sins, and yet all suffering exists because of the fall when sin first entered the world and separated us from God. By dying on the cross to pay for our sin, Jesus defeated the power of suffering. We, know, we now have hope that we will not ultimately receive from the Lord the due penalty for our sins. Because of Jesus, though we often suffer now, there is a day of restoration coming when God will put an end to all sickness, sorrow, pain, and even death. Until that day of final restoration, we as the church are called to be a community of healing and restoration. Not a, a community of politics or programs or pageants, but a community that points others to Christ. The suffering servant who died on the cross and rose again to reconcile us to God in the midst of a broken world. 
Dave, you're reading 2 Corinthians, so read 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5. And then somebody read the next two verses, verses six, uh, six and seven. And then I'll read verses 8 through 11. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Does that not sound exactly what Job went through? But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. All right, guys, that's the story of Job. Any questions, thoughts about the book of Job? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. We didn't address uh, that, that one from Job 19, which says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and on the end, he will stand upon the earth. He says, I will, I'm getting it a little bit mangled, but he says, in my flesh, I will see God. So that's even back in the days before Abraham, Job's hope was not on an, on an escape from his earthly problems, an escape from the body that burdened him, an escape from the world that was a burden to him. His hope was always for resurrection. His hope was always for the restoration of all things, including the family that he lost. Now, he gets a little bit of a taste of it at the end of the book, but in the end, we do know that Job, like the rest of us, will see our Redeemer face-to-face, in the flesh, on this earth. And all the suffering that we've endured here will be wrapped up into his great story of healing and hope when Jesus comes again. We do suffer in this life, but we have hope because of the resurrection of the dead, because of Jesus, that we too will rise again to a new restored life. A new garden, a new Jerusalem, a new city because of Jesus. Good. Good reminder. Yeah, Dave. I think that um, something that has comforted me about it is like what place does this have in the Bible? And I think Job, like you mentioned, is, is a Christ figure because he's keenly seeking the innocent ones who are suffering. 
Yeah, that's a good point. That Jesus, in the in the Job story, uh, in Job's life, Job was an innocent man who suffered, and Jesus entered into the world as a as a suffering servant, a suffering savior who suffered to redeem people like Job, uh, and frankly, like people like Job's friends who get it all wrong and who have retribution theology just like we do sometimes too. Listen, um, I, I, was, I laugh about this. If you want to see retribution theology, you, you ever hear you all read the uh, northofscambia.com, that website, all the local news? Oh, hell is very real in the comments section of northofscambia.com. Uh, if there's anybody in this community who doesn't believe in hell, they're not reading that website, man, because there is divine retribution for every uh, person who does anything wrong on that deal. And that's what we tend to think, you know. The good people go to heaven and the bad people go to hell, right? The good people live blessed lives and the, and the bad people are, are cursed, but that's not the way it works. Um, oftentimes, God has plans and mysteries that are beyond what we can see with our own eyes. But just because the works of God are mysterious doesn't mean that God is in any way absent or that uh, he may sometimes in life reveal the mysteries of why things happen. That does happen sometimes. And sometimes we see, oh, okay, this event in my life, this door was closed, and because this door was closed another door was open that's much, much better. We see that sometimes, but sometimes we don't see it. And I think the question for all of us is, is God enough for us to live in that mystery between our lack of understanding and his total sovereignty? Can we trust the God who makes plans that we do not understand all the time? And I think the answer to that is Jesus, who is called the Logos, the reason, the wisdom of God. Uh, because we have Jesus and because we have the gospel, we can see the end of the story very clearly. And that gives us hope and confidence to trust him in those middle chapters, which are not always easy to understand. Yeah. No, it's it's not it's not easy. 
It's not easy. And I think that in all of these things, and we'll get to some of these other comments too, I think that, I think that we can, there's, there might be a fine line, and I hope I'm not splitting hairs, between uh, giving thanks in all things and giving thanks for all things. Does that make sense? Um, you know, if uh, the day I remember, you know, the day that my grand, one of my grandfathers died, you know, all my grandparents, but the day my grandparents died, I mean, I gave thanks for their life and I gave thanks for God's comfort and his faithfulness, but I wasn't happy they died. I didn't, I didn't say, oh, thank God, you know, the grandpa's dead. Yeah. I mean, that would be, imagine giving that eulogy, yeah. you know what I mean? It's like, hey, we'll give thanks for all things, so, uh, you know, thank the Lord. I, but, and yet, with saying that, we also have to give thanks in all things, as the scripture so clearly teaches. And so I think that maybe the answer is that we give thanks to the God who will ultimately bring uh, new life from death and healing and restoration, even in the midst of this temporal calamity that we suffer uh, Susie, do you have a comment to make? Yeah, I was just going to say one thing that kind of confused me, though, was at first it just seemed like this willy-nilly experiment. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you, at the beginning and at the end, when God replies to him, he, he clearly sets a limit. Mm -hmm. It's a good point. It's a good point. Um, that even in, even in these uh, calamitous moments, such as Job experienced, God is not absent. Um, God does not hand us over to the devil and allow the devil to do whatever he would do to us. Um, he sets limits and parameters and guides even, even those very difficult moments of our life. That's a good point. Any other comments? I think I saw another hand over here. Tim? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I don't know if you could hear him. He said that the an equal, at least equal, question is, why is God so merciful to us? You know, given the fact that we do sin, given the fact that we do question God, and Job did a lot of questioning of God. He didn't just sort of uh, meekly accept all this. I mean, there, it's, uh, it's some pretty shocking language. If you don't, if you kind of get a summary of the book of Job and you've never actually read it, uh, there are some passages in there that are uh, very bold and very almost shocking to our ears to say, how could Job say this to God? This is, it seems like maybe not a prayer that I would hope not to pray, though maybe I would, I don't know. But yeah, that's a good point is sometimes the greater mystery is God's grace and mercy toward us. Shirley, do you have something? Isn't it Job who said, why should I accept this 
That's right. He does say that in the very opening uh, verses of it. I'll, if you have your Bibles, you can look, um, see if my memory is serving me. I think what you're referring to is in Job chapter 1. Yeah, what, what verse is that? Oh, is it? Okay. Um, are you thinking about this one? Job 1 verse 20. Then the Lord arose and tore... Then Job, excuse me. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Is that what you're thinking of, or is there another passage that you had in mind? Okay. I could be wrong. I screwed up last week, too. I put, up, I put um, Esther in the genealogy of Jesus, so I make mistakes. 210? You want to read, read that, Cheryl? Mm-hmm. Yep, and then, uh, as David pointed out earlier, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, maybe there's a way to think about that is that um, God has people who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ all over the world who came to know the true God of Scripture and to know the grace of Jesus in ways that would blow our mind, you know, that we, and we think, well, we've got to do it this way. We've got to, I don't know, air, you know, drop uh, Bibles from helicopters or something, you know, or we've got to take these guys to seminary or we've got to do this one way, whatever our one way is. And I'm not belittling 
any of that, giving people Bibles or training. Right, it's, but it's, it's ultimately God will use what we do, um, but at the same time, uh, it's not up to us. And frankly, sometimes the lesson of Job's three friends is sometimes it's better to just kind of be there and not say a lot. You know, when we don't know and we don't always know, sometimes it's better to just be quiet and be present and to love and to pray and not be the Bible answer man or the Bible answer woman at all times kind of spitting out answers um, because sometimes those answers are very clear and sometimes they're not always so clear and sometimes you can say the right thing in the wrong way uh, not everything that Job's three friends say is totally wrong I mean they're, they're not complete heretics it's not like uh, he was surrounded by you know Creflo Dollar and you know all these prosperity type of guys I think that they were legitimately faithful, believing people. And some of the things they said were right, and some of the things they said were wrong. But I think all of the things they said were kind of not helpful because they didn't say them in a... Maybe because they did think it was up to them. That sort of ties into my point, is they thought, well, I got to say the right thing to get this guy back on track, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that should be encouragement to you, uh, to all of you, that it is God's work, because that means we can talk to anybody about the Lord. And if it's their day, they're coming to faith that day. And if it's not their day, well, no argument that you could give them is going to, you know... Uh, arm wrestle the Holy Spirit down to the ground and be like, I, you know, I know he wasn't going to get converted until five years from now, but I just nailed him with the cosmological argument. So he's coming today, Lord. That's not how it works. We can talk to everybody without fear, with patience, with love, um, and, and just tell everybody about the Lord and say, here's who God is and here's what God does. And yeah, there's mystery in the world. And somebody might say, well, what about the tsunami that happened here? I, don't, I can't explain that. I don't know why that happened. It's a good question. But I do know that my Redeemer lives, and on the end, he will stand upon the earth. I will see him face to face, and either I will get answers to all of these questions, or I will encounter the answer to all my questions in the person of God's Son. And so maybe that's the answer. Well, let's see. It's about time to go. So we're going to come back next week. Next week is Psalms. You will be amazed that we will get 150 Psalms in one hour. Uh, Dave's going to give us the whole thing. Uh, some of us will be, we're just going to go around the room reading Psalm 119, you know, verse by verse. No, it'll be good. Uh, Dave's been studying the book of Psalms even before he knew we were doing this class. And so he's got some really cool insights that he shared with me about the structure of the book and how to organize the book. So I'm looking forward to that next week too. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. Your word feeds us. It feeds our souls. Lord, we want to know you. 
sinfully, we often want to know the hidden things that you have done in the world. I pray, Lord, that we would simply be humble and submit and repent and, and be embraced by your love. We thank you, Lord, that you are faithful in all circumstances. We thank you that though we often suffer in this world various things, physically, emotionally, with worry and fear, with death and sickness, we know ultimately, Lord God, that you will take the broken pieces of our lives and put them back together again. I pray for anyone in this class or maybe who's listening to the recording later who is suffering. I pray, Lord God, that in teaching this, I have not been like one of Job's friends and been flippant in anything that I've said about, about suffering and pain. We know it's easy to discuss these things academically. It's much more difficult when we're enduring them personally. So forgive me, Lord God, for any rash words. And I pray that all of us would learn the wonders of your love, even in the midst of suffering and pain. Lord, may the suffering and pain be like a black, a black velvet cloth that highlights the beautiful diamond of your love and redemption. Lord, may we see you more clearly. May we feast on your word and prepare us now, Lord, for us to worship together. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, thanks, guys. We'll see you in the sanctuary, and then we'll see you back here next week. Yep, thanks, man. <laughs>